0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Show podcast. My name's Rick Samprin. Police reporting hundreds of crashes in Hamilton, Niagara and the GTA as freezing rain, ice pellets and snow fell on a wide swath of Southern Ontario on Sunday. And that also kept electric utilities crews busy with a number of weather-related power outages in the city. There's a new report from the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton showing 45% of renters are living in unaffordable housing, ready for Autonomous vehicles in the city. It's going to happen on the mountain as early as next year. Those vehicles are going to be tested and transit talks in the city of Hamilton have taken a detour.
1: Today on the Bill Kelly Show
0: on 900 CHML. Fast forward to what was a busy Sunday for electric Utilities and we welcome Rachel Bertone to the show. Rachel, how are you?
2: Hi there, I'm good. How are you?
0: Uh, thanks for joining us. I'm fantastic today. Yesterday, not so much. Uh, you guys were hopping uh, uh, like crazy yesterday.
2: Yeah, yesterday was um, a very busy day for us. Uh, that ice storm was, in, for lack of a better word, the perfect storm. Um we, With the ice buildup and the accumulation on the lines and on tree branches, it caused us to have a very busy day, very busy night, and our crews are actually still working right now.
0: So how many calls in total and how many incidents did you have yesterday and even today?
2: All right, so at the peak of uh, the storm, so the peak amount of customers that we had out was 18,600 across Hamilton and St. Catharines. Um, and we had over, at one point, over 270 individual incidents of um, our customers that did a great job of reporting downed wires. So very, very, very busy night, but we're happy to report that right now, as of uh, 8 o'clock this morning, we're down to 1,639 customers across Hamilton and St. Catharines. So we've made great progress over the last day.
0: And you mentioned at the peak, 18,000 people, businesses, uh, out uh, without hydro. Uh, What time frame were we looking at there? Was it late morning, early afternoon, late afternoon?
2: So the uh, outages uh, commenced around uh, 11 o'clock yesterday morning. And um, unfortunately, some customers, like I said, there's about 1,600 customers out right now um, still. Um, and again, a lot of times uh, with an ice storm and uh, what that means is that, you know, the ice accumulates on our equipment and or on nearby trees and the they become so heavy that these tree branches come into contact with our lines. And what happens, and the reason I'm telling you this is because when these tree branches come into contact with our equipment, in order for us to restore power... Um, on a normal day, we'd be able to, you know, make some adjustments in the control, room. our control arm staff are awesome at being able to, you know, reroute power, get everybody up as quickly as possible. But with these tree branches coming into contact with our equipment, or power lines, unfortunately falling due to the ice accumulation, we have to actually get crews at each and every incident to physically remove the tree branches and to physically repair um, the power lines. So that's why that it's, we still have, unfortunately, 1,600 customers out, um, but we have crews working also we had we had crews sorry working throughout the entire night last night and we have them working right now and we will not stop until we have everybody with power
0: with any uh, ice storm or freezing rain warning or or heavy snowfall there's always a a preparedness plan what goes into that plan how does electric utilities and all of its crew members plan for a day like yesterday
2: so for us, um, that's us, uh, you know, we watch, we're watch. we watching the weather um, from days from days prior to a storm like this happening. So, you know, we're having all the crews um, on a 24-hour rotation. We actually mobilize some of our crews from um, other parts of our service territory. So, for example, you know, a lot of... Um, We were, we only had outages in Hamilton and St. Catharines, but we span all the way up to Barrie. So we actually mobilized crews from our central and eastern locations to help out. Um, and that's just the way that we want to make sure that we have as many crews, um, able as possible to restore our homes and businesses, um, in a, in a decent amount of time. Um, and we also want to, let our customers know that you know having an emergency preparedness kit is probably the best way to be prepared in a, in advance of these ice storms so it's always having like extra water um, medicine first aid flashlight uh, radio power um, a battery operated radio um, things like that will really help um, in events such as yesterday
0: You just mentioned that Electra serves a a wide swath of uh, the province. Was Hamilton Mm -hmm. amongst the busiest busiest communities in terms of uh, the the number and the extent of the power outages?
2: Yeah, so we um, we only had um, outages in Hamilton and St. Catherine. So let's say, um, I want to say Hamilton was the hardest hit. Um with uh I think that I, I don't have the exact numbers, but I do know that the Hamilton um did see the most amount of outages and again that's just due to the way that the infrastructure is is in Hamilton, a lot of overhead lines and a lot of mature beautiful trees that unfortunately cause um the outages and ice storms.
0: And how long is a typical repair? We're talking several hours, depending on uh, you know, what what's what's down or if the line is down? Uh um,
2: Honestly, that it totally depends on the volume of calls um, and what um, and what what is exactly happening. So for a normal day, yes, it's normally. It's sometimes, like crews can get um, power restored in within an hour. Um, again, everything is complete. That would be it, everything is. Um, that's very specific. Like very specific. So, for example, with an ice storm. Outages can happen and last for a couple hours, or they can be restored right away. It really just depends on how the tree and or the wires have either come down or if the tree has come into co- contact with our equipment. And again, it's, a, it's tedious work to actually visit each and every one of these um, incidents to have the crews remove the tree and then secure the equipment to restore power. So it does take a little bit of time in these situations.
0: Well, you guys did a great job yesterday. I know it's never fun being out there, but uh, kudos to all the crews who went out and and made some repairs. Rachel, appreciate the time today.
2: Thank you so much for having me, and I'm glad everybody stayed safe.
0: That's uh, the number one thing. Uh, There were a lot of uh, crashes yesterday in uh, Hamilton, in Niagara, in the GTA. Of course, a big pileup in the Kingston area. Two fatalities that we know of uh, yesterday. One in uh, Niagara, the other one in the Kingston area for the latest on what is happening on the roads now. Let's go to OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt. Kerry, how are you? Hey, not too bad. It's been a busy morning. I can understand. It was a busy day yesterday as well. Maybe we'll get what's happening now. How are things, have they improved? What's well, going on? Well, they're
1: greatly improving right now. The snow has stopped falling. Uh, moisture's not coming out of the sky, but it's coming from the back of every vehicle in front of you so if you don't have washer fluid uh this is the time you better be topped up because you're going to go blind pretty quickly if you can't keep those windows clear
0: we had about 400 crashes reported yesterday at least the ones that were reported probably many more weren't even reported that that, would you classify that as a a uh, extra busy day
1: yeah, that was a busy day for a Sunday for sure. Uh, I did the numbers this morning, and since 8 o'clock, I, I guess we probably had about 500 uh, re- calls for service. Uh, about three three 350 or so of them were crashes that we actually investigated throughout uh, the greater Toronto Golden Horseshoe area from Niagara to Cambridge to Toronto and up, and uh, that, uh, uh, in addition to uh, many more vehicles that were either pulled out by tow trucks before we got to the scene or vehicles that went straight to the reporting center that didn't need police uh, response uh, and who knows how many more vehicles spun out lost control and straightened out on themselves before uh, anybody else uh, was notified so uh, the conditions right now are improving greatly the lanes themselves you can now see the roads are wet but I'm telling you the ramps and the shoulders are still snow covered and slushy and slippery and so don't take uh, that uh, fact that uh, you can go back to your regular speed because there's still going to be slippery sections on those roads.
0: When you're on the job on a day like yesterday and there's hundreds upon hundreds of crashes, what goes through your mind?
1: Well, trying to keep up with uh the the calls for service, understanding there's, uh, there's only so many officers out on the road at any given time, our communication dispatchers are prioritizing calls uh, and uh, assigning officers, uh, depending on where they are, closest to, to the call type uh, situations, trying to get as many vehicles and investigations covered off as quickly as possible so as to prevent secondary crashes, which often have far more devastating consequences than the initial call. So one thing we can ask uh, all drivers to, if you ever are involved in a collision, uh, minor damage, your vehicle's still drivable, get off the highway as quickly as you can under your own power if possible, uh, because that will avoid those uh, distractions and those surprises that other motorists come upon and if they're not prepared they could end up driving right into the back of you and certainly don't get out of your vehicle as a pedestrian if you get struck you're going to take a much bigger uh, injury than if you're in the safety protection of your vehicle.
0: Is yesterday another example of how we are unable to change our driving behavior according to the conditions?
1: Well you know for those four or 500 people that were involved in wrecks and maybe more. Yeah. They failed the grade. A lot of people are passing the grade and I'm seeing drivers right now. Most of them have their snow brushed off, but uh, we still see plenty of vehicles with snow all over their hoods, which is going to fly up in their windshield and, and top of the SUVs. It doesn't take much to reach up and, and scrape that to brush that snow off and, uh, again, just make sure you're driving with your full attention. Uh, Don't be distracted by other issues in your vehicle, around you. Uh, Make sure you have both hands on the wheel, because even if you drift off and your vehicle catches a bit of snow and slush, that'll actually cause considerable drag on your vehicle and actually pull you into, uh, into the snow even more so. And if you're not prepared, if you overreact... Uh, We often see aggressive steering or aggressive braking, which causes vehicles then to lose even more control. And now you're probably into the wall or into into a vehicle beside you.
0: we only got about a minute, but how much wilder would it have been if yesterday was today or tomorrow?
1: Well, absolutely. Uh, you, you never know what could have happened. Sadly, we had a fatality uh, crash on the QEW uh, early yesterday morning, just as the snow and the freezing rain started to hit. And that's the most dangerous time when you're going from perfect conditions to all of a sudden this freezing rain ice pellets, and you don't realize how slippery it is, and maybe before the salt is, is applied. And so, uh, anytime you're driving, no matter where you are, be aware that the conditions can change rapidly, and even driving over an overpass or an elevated platform like a bridge, uh, you uh, may experience a different driving experience than uh, on the highway. So, again, always uh, cognizant of what the conditions could be and how they're behaving. And, and now, as the salt has uh, melted away a lot of that snow, the roads are still wet. And uh, you still need to drive with caution. And it's still going to be a busy day today and this afternoon for the evening rush hour. There's still going to be snow and slush on the roads.
0: OPP Sergeant Kerry Schmidt, always love uh, seeing the updates on your Twitter feed. It is a great resource for uh, not only motorists, but anyone who wants to uh, head out and venture onto the roads. And uh, really thank you for the time today.
1: I appreciate it. Thank you.
0: Kerry Schmitz, OPP sergeant, joining us to talk about uh, the latest snowmageddon or icemageddon or ice storm yesterday. And it would have been compounded and then some if it happened during a work week. Um, all I can say is drive according to the conditions. It's it's not a, uh, a tough thing to do, that's for sure.
1: Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML.
0: A new report from the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton shows that 45% of renters are living in unaffordable housing. The SPRC has published its first four bulletins as part of a 15-part series on the rental housing crisis in the city. Now, our guest that we're going to talk to in a matter of seconds joined Bill Kelly uh, last week to touch on this topic, but we're going to dive a little bit deeper on it today. This report says that 45% of renters are living in unaffordable housing. It means that they spend about 30% of their income on housing costs alone. And some are even spending more than that. The report says 20% of renters are spending half or more of their income on their housing. And the percentage of people using a high amount of their income is in line with the provincial average. 45% of people use 30% of their income on rent. 21% use half of their income on average. That's a lot of money going to housing. Here to shed more light on this great report from the Social Planning and Research Council is social planner Sarah Mayo, and she joins us now on the Bill Kelly Show. Sarah, good morning. How are you?
3: Good. Thank you for having me.
0: Thanks for coming on again. Now, Part of the problem here is, well, the the rental rates are just too high.
3: Yeah, rents have increased uh, tremendously across Hamilton's neighborhoods. Um, We've seen uh, high increases in the downtown and mountain neighborhoods, um, over a 40% increase from 2010 to 2018, so about 4.7% a year, which is much higher than inflation. Um, So yeah, rents are definitely um, increasing uh, tremendously in Hamilton.
0: You mentioned inflation since 2015 to 2018, inflation went up about 6%. Rental prices uh, increased 21%. Yeah,
3: exactly. And this this number is all renters in primary um, uh, uh, private units. So this is uh, many units that are rent controlled. So it includes um, it includes new renters that that are in units that are um, when units turn over there's no rent control but it also includes renters that are uh, that that are subject uh, to rent control and so it, it's even higher if you're just talking about units that are available on the market the the, the increase is even higher.
0: That's a good point to make. I'm looking at a um, a map of this city from the SPRC report yeah. and when we're looking at average rental prices i mean it's not the same across the city we can't just say you know hamilton's average rent is this i mean we could say that if you average them all out yeah but from community to community or neighborhood to neighborhood in this yeah. city it's really different
3: yeah so on average the in the entire city for a, in a private um uh primary private rental buildings it's about a thousand dollars on average but we broke it down by neighborhood and definitely um there's huge differences. So in some of the suburban areas, in Ancaster, it can go up to $1,300 a month on average. Um, and um, some of the downtown areas, it's uh, lower, about $821. But that, um, that, the, the average kind of hides things because um, in the suburbs, you'll have larger units. So, of course, they're, um, they're priced higher because there's more bedrooms. Um, and also in downtown, uh, the downtown numbers include, uh, well, all, all, the, the neighborhood numbers include subsidized housing, and there's higher rates of subsidized housing in, in downtown. And so, so we also looked at, as well, sort of just looking at one and two-bedroom uh, units separately. And those, the, the differences aren't as much, but it's still pretty high. So um, a two-bedroom unit, the lowest price is about 966 in kind of Central East Hamilton, Uh, up to 1,200 in in Ancaster. And so those are the same number of units, same number of bedrooms, but, you know, dramatic difference.
0: We're chatting with Sarah Mayo, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton, on a new report that shows 45% of renters in this city are living in unaffordable housing. And uh, one of the tidbits of info that stuck out to me is that between 2017 and 2018, the average rent in this city spiked 6.9%. Um, how, how can it go up that much? I thought there was a cap on rental price increases.
3: Yeah, well, there is. uh, uh uh, Ontario has somewhat of a rent control system, but it is really in a uh, uh biased uh it gives more power to landlords and it sort of it creates a, an incentive for landlords to evict people because once the unit is uh free, uh, it, it, uh, uh a, a, a new tenant can be charged whatever the the landlord wants and there's no limits at all. And so that's what's happening is that there's this perverse incentive um, for people who have um, stayed in their apartment for a long time and have, have had rent increases in line with inflation as rent control dictates, landlords c- are kind of wanting to get rid of them because they could make a lot more if they had a new tenant. And that's a, a real problem because it's leading to high eviction rates, especially in Hamilton's um, uh, most affordable rental neighbourhoods.
0: We've been hearing the term renovictions. Does that fall under this?
3: Yes, so um, if a landlord wants to evict someone to do major renovations, that's a, what's called a, a no-fault eviction, and it's an L2 notice. Most, um, th- So that's the data we looked at. So L2 notices are for um, evictions for reasons other than non-payment of rent, and um, evictions for n- non-payment of rent are kind of stabilized, even, even going down a bit. But evictions for other reasons have gone up tremendously, and... and it can be all sorts of reasons, not just renovations, but those are the ones that are m- most likely used by landlords to um, get rid of, you know, perfectly good tenants who are paying uh, a rent that the landlord feels is too low, and 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 tenants have very little recourse and and, and very little power at the landlord-tenant board hearings. Uh, only about three percent of, land- of tenants have a have a legal representation, compared to eighty percent of landlords. There's just a, a, a tremendous difference in power, whereas in Quebec, there's there's a much better balance of power uh, in their r- rental system.
0: So what is Quebec doing better than what Ontario is doing?
3: Well, one of the things that Quebec does differently, for instance, if you want to be evicted for if if it's a house, uh, you know, duplex, and the landlord wants to move his parents in, let's say, uh, where your unit is, you you get six months notice, unlike in in Ontario, where in most cases you only get 60 days notice. So things like that that don't cost uh, any money, but give a bit more power to the tenant to 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 be able to uh, take some time in finding a new place. And then the other big thing is that um, in Quebec uh, there's a standard lease form which is obligatory. it's it's optional here. and the on the standard lease form, landlords have to write what the previous tenant's rent was. So information is power. First of all, tenants, are told what the previous rent is here in ontario there's no such information and secondly the tenants have ten days to appeal that so it's not automatic that the that the landlord can't increase the rent but if the tenant feels it's an unfair increase the landlord has to justify it so they can bring in information at the landlord-tenant board to say yes i did renovations of course uh, i should be able to charge more and they can and they are allowed in those cases but just unfair increases rent gouging is not allowed, and it, it kind of it, it gives more pep power to the tenants. So landlords kind of don't do it as much because they know they won't get away with it. So they, 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 they do um, increases that are that that are not as egregious, uh, hoping that the that the tenant won't appeal it.
0: Very interesting. We're talking about a new report from the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton that shows 45% of renters are living in unaffordable housing. And our guest is Sarah Mayo, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton. Um, have eviction notices or the number of evictions in this city increased over the last number of years?
3: Yeah, that was something we've looked at. The um, the province uh, now uh, gives access to to much more detailed eviction notice data. So it's not about actual evictions. There's many eviction notices that, that don't lead to evictions, but obviously an increase in, in notices is is very concerning. And so we're seeing that um, in the 2018-2019 period uh, in uh, the Corktown neighborhood had the highest, Corktown and Stinson, um, so near uh, near the ghost station and a little bit east of that. Um, not the new ghost station, the old ghost station um the 3.6% of renters in one year alone were getting L2 notices so notices for uh eviction for other reasons than non-payment of rent and that's really uh concerning you know 3.6% in one year and and we know you know exactly you know what we see in the in the paper is documented in in the newspaper and in on radio of stories of um uh you know a formal eviction through um through rent evictions or other types of, of of evictions, but also informal that aren't tracked in these numbers. So informal evictions happen when, for instance, a landlord closes a laundry room because in the more expensive units they've added laundry uh in, in suite laundry and so for the uh longer term tenants who don't have that, they're closing the laundry rooms and it basically becomes an unlivable place if there's no laundry in the neighborhood and you don't have a car it really becomes very difficult uh, or doing renovations next door and it's very noisy and difficult to live and and so people um, or or being offered money by the landlord to to leave uh, voluntarily so all, all those are informal evictions not tracked in the numbers and and difficult to track but but we know are happening more and more
0: we know that the price of real estate between let's say toronto or the gta and hamilton has really uh, driven up house prices in this community because a lot of gta buyers are saying hey i can get a lot more home for a lot less price let's make that move are renters thinking the same as well
3: well i think everyone's looking for more affordable housing whether it's owners or renters and and you're right that this is not just a hamilton issue we have a housing crisis in many cities in ontario and canada um... and 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 it had, so the solutions really have to come from a provincial and a, a national level and and those those prices you know renters are trying to find more affordable housing for sure and also renters though are also being um, there's more competition now uh... in the rental market we have a. a, a in our next series of bulletins, uh, we'll be talking about the increase. There's an increase in renters that we haven't seen for a long time. And and so there's more competition for units. And be, the increase in, in renters in large part is because ownership is becoming out of reach for so many people. Um, people used to rent for, you know, for a certain period in their life and then have enough money to own, and that's no longer the case for as many people.
0: Um. Over the last number of months, the federal government has instituted a number of measures, including the mortgage stress test, uh, the first-time home buyers incentive. Is that uh, through this research or, or, or uh, in, in uh, anecdotal conversations with people, is that enticing people to get into housing or, or more affordable housing?
3: Well, I mean, w- this report we really wanted to look at renters because so much of the discussion. The public discussion about about housing so often is about owners and, and there's lots of different issues that they face for sure, but there's not enough attention paid to renters who don't have any of those, um, uh, you know, sort of opportunities for, uh, I mean, the mortgage stress test is not an opportunity, it limits um it limits who can who can be an owner but the, but there's much less attention paid um on renters especially in the private market we we hear you know affordable housing we hear a lot about and 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 subsidized housing is a very important part of the market Um part you know we need more affordable housing more subsidized housing but most people who live in affordable housing actually live in private units unsubsidized and have just benefited from rent control over the years Um and 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 so it's affordable uh for them but we uh but the federal government in its national housing strategy has barely talked about private rentals it's really mainly about uh like you say ownership and uh subsidized housing but there's a large number of people in private uh affordable housing uh and non-subsidized housing that are that need attention as well.
0: Sounds like it's time for the provincial government at least to review the Landlord-Tenant Act to see if they can shift a little bit more of the power to tenants, right?
3: To tenants, and I think that it's a, it's a, an interesting opportunity for the provincial government to really pay attention to the Rental Tenancies Act because it's something that costs the government no money. So it's no, there it would need no... Um, uh, you know, extra subsidy for anyone. It would just be about, like you say, giving a bit more power to tenants, a bit more information about what the previous rent was paid, some, uh, uh, you know, recourse to appeal if the increases are too high, um, and then maybe also um, more representation. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit more subsidy to legal aid clinics to help tenants would also be very helpful.
0: Just got a great tweet from a CHML listener by the name of Brian who says, I would like to sign a multi-year lease like five years, but my landlord will only let me sign a one-year lease so they yeah. can increase the rent every year. Is that happening a lot?
3: Yeah, um, there is no, the, the the landlord doesn't, can offer kind of the lease they want, but you have the automatic right to, um to get to, to continue to live in that place, they can't kick you out after one year um, unless they go through, a, a, you know, through one of the accessions through a, an, an eviction process. Um, but they're so you're you're you still can stay in the place for every five years. The, the rent increase can only be within, um, within the law, uh, within the rent control guidelines which are about a set at inflation every year, although if they do some major renovations, then they can apply for an above-the-board increase. So you're, you are not uh, fully protected by rent control, but there is some protection. So, so if you... So, so it's... It, it, it is... As long as you stay in your unit, and that's sort of the problem is that people are trapped. They have to stay in their units because they, uh, because if they go on the market and find another place that's more suitable to them, that's closer to their work, that has more bedrooms for their children, things like that, they uh, will be paying so much more that they feel trapped and they can't move at all.
0: And I think Brian and, and maybe a lot of other people in the same boat are thinking, hey, I'll sign a five-year deal, so to speak. You, are you, the landlord, are guaranteed to have a tenant for five years, but f- with that guarantee, you have to give me the same rate for five years. I think that's where mm-hmm. Brian's coming from. And it makes sense to me, but if you're a landlord, I mean, the, the opposite is true. It's, hey, I'm going to increase this rent every year, knowing that I'm going to have a tenant, whether yeah. it's Brian I or mean, somebody else, right?
3: I think I think everyone agrees that landlords are in the business of making a profit like any other business. Housing uh, is a business, but the question is um, how much of a profit and how, um, le- you know, um, r- uh, rental housing has become a, a, a place of investment like never before, and people are, and, and, Property owners are, are expecting a much higher rate of return than they ever had before. So in Quebec, the the uh, rent increases are are have been much lower, and yet there's many more landlords and many uh, many more rental units, and so it shows that Quebec landlords can still be profitable um, even if the the rent increases aren't as high as they are here in hamilton
0: one last question for and it's going to come from brian as well on twitter uh he's got some great ones coming in what's a major renovation painting and changing kitchen cabinets or is it more than that does have to be bigger than that
3: for a uh for uh i I would call the the legal clinic for exact information um because you can certainly contest uh some of that is not black and white law you you would uh, they if they wanted to evict you to do a renovation it would have to be more major than that um, and you they you would have a, a hearing at the landlord tenant board where you could say this is not major i'm uh, I don't want to move because of this um, but, yes, certainly uh, speak to the legal clinic here in Hamilton. Um, Hamiltonjustice.ca is their website, and they can give you more proper information.
0: Well, we got about 60 seconds here. This is the first in a series of uh, reports that uh, the SPRC is going to publish. Uh, what's coming up down the line?
3: Right. So this one was on rising rates um, uh, of rent, rising rent and, and eviction rates. The next one is on housing stock so, what are the buildings like? What is the quality of rental housing in Hamilton? And a little preview on that. We we've always sort of known that that heard that Hamilton had poor housing stock and 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 more in disrepair. And and now we we have some numbers that, that do show that. And um, and so housing stock issues. And then we're going to do causes. Uh, uh, causes of these issues and 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 implications and and impacts of of the rental housing crisis, and then our final uh, bunch will be on uh, solutions, uh, so that we we can discuss how to get out of this rental housing crisis.
0: And we'll touch on those when they come out. Sarah, thanks for the time today. Thank you, Sarah Mayo, social planner with the Social Planning and Research Council of Hamilton.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Are you ready? to drive alongside autonomous vehicles in Hamilton. Well, it's going to happen on the mountain as early as next year because Hamilton has been selected as one of six regional technology demonstration sites. Here to chat about all of this and what it all means is City Councilor in Ward 8 for the beautiful city of Hamilton, John Paul Danko. John Paul, how are you today?
4: Well, I'm pretty good, Rick. How are you?
0: Not too bad. Thanks for coming on. So what does the uh, what does this all mean for the city of Hamilton, and why has Hamilton been chosen?
4: Well, this is a really exciting initiative for the city of Hamilton. Um, for a number of years, we've been uh, working towards a, a smart city designation and competing with other cities around the world for that smart city uh, acknowledgement. And uh, Hamilton was selected by the province um, through the province's Autonomous Vehicle Innovation Network as one of six regional demonstration sites. And what this means is that there will be about a $10 million investment through Innovation Factory at McMaster Innovation Park uh, with some of their corporate partners to bring in a 5G network for a certain um, number of roads up on the East Mountain. And uh, sensors will be installed in those roads and the purpose is so that we can partner with industry and um, our global leader at McMaster University, Global Leader in research, uh, another global leader at Mohawk College um, partner and leverage those uh, those educational institutions and our core industries in the city, Hamilton, to bring in autonomous vehicle technology to the city and hopefully all the business and uh, job opportunities that come along with that.
0: So it sounds like there's going to be some heavy-duty capital invested in the city.
4: Yeah, it's uh, not through the city of Hamilton. We're simply a partner in allowing um, some use of our city streets. Uh, But it's about $10 million of investment to bring up a a 5G network with some fiber optic uh, um, installations along the the, uh, test track as well. And also putting um, sensors up on our city infrastructure, so on our overhead street lighting, at stoplights, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a pretty big investment for industry, but uh, obviously this is a huge techn- technology growth area, and we're really excited to be a part of it.
0: So did Hamilton apply to be a part of this, or did the officials behind this project say Hamilton would be a great city to partner with?
4: I believe we we did apply along with a number of other um, uh, you know cities. But if you think about it, Hamilton is an excellent place for uh, something like this, an initiative like this, because we have actually still a growing uh, manufacturing base, one of the few yeah. cities in North America that still has a manufacturing industrial base. And we're a perfect place, uh, like I said, with our partnerships, with our educational institutions, with McMaster and Mohawk, and industry and a lot of the research that's already happening in Hamilton at McMaster and Innovation Factory and uh, McMaster Innovation Park that can be applied to this and from a city perspective what we get out of it is a better understanding of how autonomous vehicles will behave and change our transportation networks so if you think about it we're going to be part of the data sharing with uh, with the consortium with the groups involved and if you think about it, if you have autonomous vehicles that are on city streets, that could fundamentally change how we design and and build our our municipal infrastructure. For example, if you have autonomous vehicles that are coming up to a stop sign, do you still need a stop sign? Or will the cars be able to identify where each other are and stop and arrange their own, you know, um, um, optimized pattern for stopping and going? Um Things like speed cushions, you know, right now we're into vision zero and we're doing our best to uh, reduce those harmful collisions uh, on our city streets. But uh, once there's autonomous vehicles, will we be able to limit the speed limits? Do we still even need speed signs once cars know what the speed is supposed to be? So there's quite a bit of information that we want to collect and, and analyze from a city perspective as well.
0: We're chatting with uh, John Paul Danko, Ward 8 counselor here in the city of Hamilton, about autonomous vehicles being tested in the city. So when will this begin and where in the city is this being done?
4: This is a number of streets up on the East Mountain. And uh, what the the partnership wanted was somewhere where they could test in a real world situation. So a lot of the technology that will be tested isn't a fully autonomous vehicle as you would normally think of it. Um, it could just be components of that technology, for example the camera systems, the uh, the data uplink systems, the, the forward-facing radar and those kinds of different components. Um, obviously a fully autonomous vehicle is a very complex uh, technology So there's a whole bunch of different individual components that go into that that will be part of the testing in a real-world condition. And, uh, you know, Hamilton's perfect for that because if you think of a day like yesterday with uh, snow and ice and today, um, those are the kind of conditions that these companies really want to be testing in, and obviously they can't do that in Southern California.
0: (laughs) No, not not quite. (laughs) Uh, And this is going to happen in the second quarter of next year, is that correct?
4: I believe so, so it's there's quite a bit that goes into getting this uh this going and and I know there's a bunch of partnerships that are you know with technology providers and trying to get people interested in this, but we see this as a huge growth opportunity for the city, and like I said, you know part of our goal as as a municipality is to attract new business and new job opportunities for our residents, and of course those new business new businesses pay um, municipal taxes you know which is it's all. It's good for everybody when we have that new industry that's interested in our city. And historically, these are you know high tech, well-paying new jobs, and that's exactly what we need as a municipality.
0: And so, how uh, how long are these autonomous vehicles going to be on our roads? Is this a six-month pilot, a one year, two years?
4: Uh, it's a multi-year pilot. Um, I'm not sure if there's there's an end date in sight. I, I think that'll probably depend on, uh, you know, how many partnerships uh, develop over time and how successful it is. But, um, you know, for residents that may be a little bit concerned about a fully autonomous vehicle, it, it won't be that. Um, if there is a fully autonomous vehicle, there will always be a driver 100% responsible that's sitting there in the passenger seat. Um, but like I said, this is a great opportunity for our municipality, for the city of Hamilton.
0: As uh, I know you have an engineering background, this kind of stuff must fascinate you.
4: Oh, I love it. It's uh, it's fantastic. And, you know, thinking about all of those graduates that come out of McMaster and Mohawk every single year and, you know, everybody's looking for a job. And unfortunately, we lose so many graduates to, um, you know, to the bigger cities like Toronto and, and into the U.S. Um, so I think this is a really great opportunity for us to keep those new grads here and those young workers in a, in a, in an industry that we don't know where it's going to go. Um, we know that it's a very huge growth sector, but, you know, who knows what companies would be spawned out of different technology that could be invented right here in the city Hamilton.
0: I know uh, McMaster Innovation Park, uh, the CanMet Lab, uh, you mentioned McMaster and Mohawk. Uh, you know, officials at these institutions must be excited as well to play a part into the future of autonomous driving in this province.
4: Absolutely, and I think that's where our our institutional partners have been focusing for quite a while. I mean, McMaster is known as one of the top research universities in the world. Um, So if you go to McMaster Innovation Park, all the research that's being done right now is on AI technology, um, electric vehicles, and uh, autonomous uh, systems. And the same thing with Mohawk College. you know, it, as these industries evolve and grow, you need to adapt with them. And, you know, workers are needed for that industry. And that's where Mohawk fits in, again, as a Canadian and global leader. Um so there's huge advantages for us as a city and for, you know, all our different partners throughout the city.
0: Our guest is Ward 8 Councillor John Paul Denko here on the Bill Kelly Show on 900CHML. Rick, in for Bill. One of the things I don't think many people think about when they think about autonomous vehicles is, you know, they might realize, all right, if there's a couple of autonomous vehicles, they'll be able to tell how far they are apart from each other or how close they are or whatever the case is. But they're also looking at pedestrians and cyclists as well.
4: Absolutely. And uh, that's one of the the biggest safety improvements that we're anticipating from autonomous vehicles is that um, they'll be able to react much faster than a human driver could. And they can also um, compensate for some of those human error um, situations where if it's foggy or snowy and you might not see or it's dark and you might not see that pedestrian step out into the street, where the autonomous vehicle will have technology that, that can see through that uh, you know at night and such so that they can react much quicker. Um, and I think that's some of the biggest uh, improvements that we're really hoping for is the safety aspect for those other road users who are much more vulnerable.
0: Don't want to throw a curveball at you, but I'm going to throw it anyways. Uh, we just got word from Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 that they're going to file a no-board report, which uh, will trigger a 17-day waiting period to a possible HSR strike. Just some comments on that, or should we be worried in Hamilton?
4: Well, I, I know our our city negotiators are hard at work, and I really hope that a, a strike can be avoided before, uh, if there's a deadline set. Um, obviously that would have a huge disruption for city Hamilton um, you know, everybody that takes transit throughout the city. Um, but I, am still hopeful that that can be avoided. Um. Beyond that, I mean, it's in negotiations right now, so I really can't comment. Uh,
0: One more question regarding the autonomous vehicles, and I don't don't want to sidetrack here, but I just thought of it, and and, uh, producer Jacob reminded me of it. The liability factor with autonomous vehicles through this testing, does the city have to obtain more insurance? Is it through this program? If one of these vehicles gets into contact or makes contact with another vehicle, or more practically vice versa, uh, how does that work?
4: Obviously, this is uh, these are disruptive technologies that uh, have a tendency to turn ex- existing you know, business models and things like insurance requirements uh, upside down. So I know that's something our legal um, is looking at, but my understanding is, it is the partnerships that are involved will be uh, responsible for that aspect. We're simply providing the infrastructure and gathering the data.
0: Well, exciting times ahead, I'm sure. Uh, John Paul, thanks for the time today.
4: Thanks for having me on, Rick.
0: That is Ward 8's counselor in the city of Hamilton, John Paul Danko.
1: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: Well, we have an update on the transit talks here in Hamilton. And to tell us more is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107, Eric Tuck, who joins us on the program. Eric, good morning.
5: Good morning, Rick. How are you this
0: morning? Not too bad yourself?
5: Good, good. I've been better. Uh, as you know, we're, we're gearing up for hopefully... Uh, what will be a settlement, Uh, but right now, you know, things are up in the air.
0: I understand uh, the transit uh, talks have taken a detour. What's going on?
5: Yes, unfortunately, uh, the last time we met, we we had two more days of meetings. Uh, We were able to come to some agreement on the washrooms and time to use them. Unfortunately, that's going to take at least four to five years to fully implement. Uh, Where we weren't able to get agreement was on the monetary package
0: okay so where does that leave negotiators from your side of the equation
5: so we're hoping that council will see some some resolution in this we've conceded on the uh, washrooms and the time to use them as far as the implementation we were hoping to have an early implementation right away we've been working under these conditions as you know for 120 years um it's going to take three to five years to implement and so we're asking council to consider that fact that uh, we are willing to be patient and to allow them time to implement that. Uh, but at the same time, we can't take wage concessions that are uh, below the cost of living and below the market uh, rates.
0: So what kind of numbers are we talking about? What does what the union want and what, what is the city proposing?
5: So originally, we were looking at a five-year deal at 2%, and the city was coming in at one6 uh, we've since revised our numbers to more more realistically reflect the cost of living, which is expected to be between 1.8 and 2%. Uh, so we've we've reduced our uh, ask to 1.8, which we think is more than reasonable, uh, considering you're three to four dollars less than any other GTH uh, transit property uh, of a major city in the, in this area.
0: So you've used a a tool in the tool chest in terms of uh, conciliation talks. What's happening on that front?
5: Yes, yeah, so uh, the, we did, uh, the city brought the conciliator in. She was very helpful, and, and we're hopeful that uh, she'll be able to get the parties back together. Uh, and the council will seriously consider revising their numbers.
0: Uh, but you filed or have requested a no board report, is this correct?
5: Correct. So we've asked the conciliator to file the no board report. Uh, We expect that should be filed within the next day or so. Um, Putting us on a timeline around December 18th, about a week before Christmas, the last thing we want to do, as I've said many times on this show, is to have any disruption in transit. Uh, our, Our projections for ridership and everything have been going in the right direction. Uh, Our members have done an an outstanding job over the last five years working under the conditions that we have, uh, and we we expect council to recognize that and, and give us a fair wage increase.
0: Eric Tuck is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. Joining us here on the Bill Kelly show on 900 CHML. Rick in for Bill today. The last quote unquote final offer from the city was rejected by your membership by nearly 98 percent. It sounds like uh, HSR or or, ATU 107 members are ready to take job action if needed. Is that a, a correct statement or a fair statement?
5: So Rick, I can tell you unequivocally that my members are, are uh, resolute in, in their demands of getting a fair contract, which uh, will recognize the cost of living and fair wages.
0: So you're ready to strike if that comes to be?
5: So we've uh, the membership has approved job action up to and including a strike. And I'll be honest with you, a strike is not my preference. Uh, But having said that, my members were very clear on their message that uh, they expect to keep pace with inflation uh, and they expect us to get a fair wage increase. So having said that, once the deadline has passed, uh, we can take job action. uh, And I I reiterate that because any kind of action is going to see a disruption on the street. Uh, Like I said, I'm not looking for a strike. I'm not looking to disturb uh, our transit trend, which has been going in the right direction. We've been working uh, very diligently to keep uh, and attract riders. Our ridership numbers have uh, increased, and we want to keep that trend going. Any type of disruption, we believe, is going to cause us to lose passengers. Uh, and once you lose them, you don't get them back for 10 years. So that's not something we want. We're going to work as hard as we can to get a, a deal for our members.
0: Apart from, a strike,
5: for our
0: apart from a strike, what other kind of job action can members take?
5: So I I really wouldn't want to talk too much about that because we do have a political action committee, we do have an executive board. We are going to be meeting later today to start discussing that uh, and putting things in place to, uh, you know, effectively what our members can or cannot do. Uh, I can tell you right now we have members that are saying they're not going to work overtime. Um, that's not something we're encouraging at this point, but it is something members have already started doing. Uh, and it's seen, you know, a reduction in service on the street, and we can't have that.
0: What kind of response do you expect from city negotiators after filing a no board report?
5: So I would help, hope that uh, council will take a sober second look at this. The reality is we have five years left on our transit strategy. We've put an offer on the table, which is for five years, it's 1% below the market value. It keeps pace with inflation, but it isn't overtaxing on the taxpayer. Uh, And we hope the council will seriously look at this and and compromise the same as we have.
0: Next negotiating meeting is for when, do you know?
5: So we have nothing said at this time. Uh, We're prepared to go back to the table at any time. Um, But it's up to the city now to decide if they're going to change their package. Uh, Ultimately, you know, they have to put the money or the tools in the hands of the people who are sitting at the table. And right now they're telling us they don't have those tools in their hands.
0: Fair to say everyone's wish, especially HSR riders, want a deal to get done. Where's your confidence level at?
5: So, you know, as I said, when I started out, I was fairly confident that we would be able to reach a deal. Uh, It is waning, uh, unfortunately. Uh, With everything that's going on, I'm afraid the council's been preoccupied uh, with the sewer gate and everything else that's going on, and that's unfortunate. Uh, We really need to put our focus on the future of this city, and I think the last thing we need at this time is a a transit disruption of any kind.
0: So is it 50-50 at this point?
5: I would say it's a 50-50 toss, yes.
0: Wow. Eric, really appreciate the time. Good luck with negotiations.
5: Thanks, Rick. I uh, appreciate it, as always.
0: Eric Tuck is the president of Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107 as they continue to negotiate a new deal with the city of Hamilton and uh, the union requesting from the conciliator a no-board report. And what that means is 17 days after that report is officially filed, uh, they can take job action or go on strike. So come December 18th-ish, It could be an HSR strike in this city, and that will have wide-reaching ramifications.
1: The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
0: The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.